posted. Hello. Uh, oh, it is? Okay. I am preaching for Calvin today while he's out of town. It's actually a special Sunday for me. I actually converted in May seven years ago in 2016, and a big reason, the main reason was prayer and the Bible, but the verse that especially convicted me, I think more than any, was at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, which is right where we left off, and I'm going to read it, but first I want to read this verse, and I need to turn it on. There we go. Now to him who is able to, bo- to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. I read this because some of the stuff I talk about this morning is to be seen within the overall context of God's miraculous power at work in the church. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks a lot about how he's going to the Father and the meaning of him going back to the Father and why. And there's a lot of reasons. One is he wants to have a relationship with all of us, like the communion thought. And he even says in John 17, 3, the definition of eternal life is a relationship with Jesus and with God. And at the time, he was really only able to with 12, and even then he had to take breaks and rest. And in heaven, on his throne, he can have a relationship with all of us, and we can even put on Christ in baptism as we always invite at the end. And another reason, though, is because he did not leave earth in bodily form, but the body of Christ is still here, and his power is still at work and he's looking for people to say, I'm all in, and the stuff he gives seems small or simple, but I really believe that it's stuff that people will see and say, wow, God is really at work here, and you'll say, wow, I had no idea how much God could do with this, and so that's just individually, but if each person does their part in the body, I think Collectively, the church can be at a point where they say, wow, I would have said it's logically possible for us to be where we are now, but I never really believed that it was possible. And I think when we read this, do you think, yeah, I know how life goes and God's limit is around here, but you know, maybe it's around here instead, a little higher, or do you think, I really have no idea and can't imagine what's coming. I used to think like that. I know how stuff goes before I converted. I thought that I'll never be happy. I'm depressed and I'll always be depressed and this is my lot in life. And of course, I had no idea how much that could change far beyond what I even wanted or could imagine over the course of one second, really. And I was really on fire and immediately reached out to my friends, and I think they would have said stuff like, I'd believe in God if the star said I exist or if he appeared in a vision. But I really, not rhetorically, but if you knew me before, you can't tell now, but especially if you were a friend before, and 
I was so ingrained with darkness and filthiness. I really think what they saw was far more unbelievable and shocking and a much bigger miracle than any of that. And I really mean that. And so it's something that the verse I talk about that convicted me, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, I spoke like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know in full, even as I've been fully known. Especially all of it, but especially the last part really hit me hard. I have pretty severe bipolar, and it's a really uh, self-destructive illness, especially relationships and also, I was in that whole world of sin is one where everyone uses each other and you get to where it's like, I don't trust anybody at all. And so it was really the thought of being completely understood, even more than I understand myself, was what something that I had wanted. And so it was on my heart, especially because not only does God understand me, but loves me more than anyone and wants what's best for me and has the power for it. And so it really hit hard. And the biggest reason was, like I said, the word and prayer, but there are other big reasons I converted, especially two people who witnessed to me and then discipled me after for a long time and spent a lot of time, Paul and Ken. And I've talked about Ken in my last sermon. He taught me Taekwondo, which was completely faith-based. It was very much discipleship, and beyond that, we spent lots of time together, and he discipled me and knew me better than most people, and I probably know him better than most people, and we still talk. And there's prayer groups that I also got really involved in that he was a part of, and quickly became one of the most involved people, and even facilitated and took on a type of leadership role, I guess. And Ken was Assemblies of God, which is charismatic. And it's, um, those prayer groups were too. And so I, he came to North Boulevard Church of Christ because of a encounter where they found out about a school discipleship program and him and others from his church decided to sign up. And everyone involved was really blessed as a result, especially me. And so I don't like, I like to be an open book with everyone at church. I don't like hiding anything, but I don't talk about that part as much because it's not really relevant much. But if anyone talks about charismatic Christianity, I usually say, yeah, I'm involved in that. And I don't know how much it registers, though. So I thought with Calvin gone on 1 Corinthians 14. It was a good opportunity to share a little more, and it's something that I'm still involved in. I'm obviously not as involved there as here, but I go to a prayer service at Valley River Life, which used to be Valley River Assemblies of God, and I've gone there ever since we lived here in 2019, and, you know, I'm not as involved, but it's still been important to me. And so it's something that if you don't know what 
people mean when they talk about charismatic Christianity. It has nothing to do with charisma or the riz, as um, some of the teens say, and it's completely unrelated. It's usually thought of as where the gifts of the Spirit are prominent, but that's not really true because teaching is a gift of the Spirit, and that's prominent in every church, and so some people say, well, maybe the more miraculous, but that's not true either because the Bible would say that no one can really do what God has for them unless they're empowered by God to accomplish it, and so I think the Bible would say all of them are just as intended to be just as miraculous. So I guess more specifically, the stuff, uh, tongues and prophecy and healing and casting out demons, but even that's not as true as you'd think. It'd be more like saying churches of Christ are a cappella. It's, you won't really say that defines it, even if it's more noticeable. There's a lot more depth and it's a lot more robust as you can probably tell, I've been here four years, and I've never really even talked about this stuff. And, but it's been a big influence on everything I've done because it's been a huge part of me. And so jumping into 1 Corinthians 14, it's something that Calvin's going to do verse by verse. So I'm just kind of flying through 1 Corinthians 14 is about the service, especially tongues and prophecy, not because they're the most important part of the service. Paul actually says tongues is the least important, but the Corinthian church asked Paul to specifically address these things. And so tongues and prophecy in the New Testament, tongues is straightforward. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through you in a language you don't know in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and they start speaking in other languages, and we have a list of all these languages that they're speaking, and different people in Jerusalem understood it. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, there are many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning, but if I do not know it, then it's not, um, not meaningful. And he also says, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he can interpret. So the it, the idea in 1 Corinthians 14 is definitely the same, that the words have meaning if they can be interpreted. And I'm somewhat flying through the slides, just giving a loose overview. If it is interpreted, the words are prayers, praise, thanksgiving, or prophecy. In Acts 2, they say, we hear them saying the mighty works of God. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul references as praying in a tongue, um, again, prayer, or you may be giving thanks, so giving thanks. And then Romans 8.26, which doesn't reference tongues, but there's not much else that makes sense, so it's probably the most likely option. He says, the Spirit prays in groanings deeper than words, and then again in 14, he says, when you speak in a tongue, you speak not to men, but to God. So, prayer. It's passionate or intense. It's not, in Acts 2, it's obvious they weren't going, Buenos uh, Dias, me amo Jonathan. They were, the whole crowds noticed 
them and they said they were drunk and some did. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, if an outsider sees you speaking in tongues, they'll say you're out of your minds. And then in Romans 8, 26, again, groaning deeper than words. The implication is that it's more than just the natural way that I talk, except a different language, but it's more intense. And then it also is tied to prophecy, like in 14, often, not all the time, but there are some ties. Uh, in Acts 19, they speak in tongues and prophesy together. And then in Acts 2, when they're speaking in tongues, Peter says that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Joel that God will pour out his spirit and his sons and daughters shall prophesy. So there's a connection. And then prophecy is somewhat less straightforward. It's speaking about something that you have no reason to know because God put it in your head and heart and it's the spirit. And so there's somewhat a temptation to say the spirit speaking through you, but that's not the best description because before I came up here, I prayed that God would give me the words to say, and that would be the gift of teaching though, which is different. Or if I have a hard conversation, I would pray for the Holy Spirit to help me speak, but that would be the gift of encouragement or wisdom, which are other gifts listed. And so prophecy specifically has to do with knowing something about a person or situation that you have no way of knowing on your own. Um, it's talked about as though it's something for everyone. He says, this is, Peter says again, that this is the beginning of the age talked about, for your sons and daughters shall prophesy on my male and female servants. I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And again, they were all doing it in Acts 2. Uh, in 1431 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you can all prophesy. Then in verse 5, I want every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you all prophesy. And then we see in the New Testament, group prayer was a big deal, and it seems as though there would be prophecy happening along with it, and there's no, the, it's talked about as though it would be something that is decently common, but then in Acts 21, we see Luke says that Philip has four daughters who prophesied, so it's clear they are especially known for this. In Romans 12, he says we have gifts that differ, and he references service, and all of us are called to be servants, and yet the meaning here is some more than others, or encourage, all of us are commanded to encourage, and even teaching the Great Commission is teach them to obey all I've commanded you, and yet we acknowledge some are teachers, meaning in a special way. So it is talked about as though prophecy has a role for all Christians, but some are especially known. Uh, the content would be related to specific situations for building up, strengthening the church or evangelism. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, if an outsider sees you prophesy, then the secrets of his heart are being disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare God is among you. Acts 15, prophets are said that their words encourage and strengthen the brothers, and then, like I said, kind of have to fly through 
but Acts 11, a prophet says that there's going to be a famine and they need to prepare. So again, something he couldn't know for preparing the church. Then the prophet in Acts 21 tells Paul when he goes to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested and handed over to the Romans. And he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 that he should be strengthened by remembering the prophecies made about him. So again, people or situations, and it's seen as different than the type of prophecy in scriptures. Second Peter 1.20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It seems to be in contrast to the kind of prophecy in church, which was seen that way, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, two or three prophets speak while the others weigh in. And he also says, you can all, if someone's prophesying and someone else wants to go, the first one should stop talking and let the next person prophesy. And then in 1 John 4, test the prophets. This is all language that you wouldn't apply to scripture. It's a different uh, it's a different type of thing with less weight than scriptures, clearly. And Paul directly says his letters overwrite prophecy. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize them, he is not recognized. First Corinthians 14, 37, and 38. And then, again, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. And we see that they're meant to be encouraged. They're definitely encouraged. Don't quench the spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, 21. They matter, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Then 39, so my brothers and sisters earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. And then so there's some of these things, I don't like calling them charismatic gifts, which is what some people call them, because it implies that they should be associated with the charismatic church as though they invented them, but rather they should just be associated with Christianity as the specific association there is within a, a little bubble within the overall association that is in New Testament Christianity. And we see its association as this is actually the only prayer recorded that the church prayed together in Acts 4. They prayed that God would give them boldness to speak the word while he stretches out his hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then, so, you may think of it as just New Testament Christianity, but the implication, the picture in the Bible is that it's just Christianity in general to be associated with it. Uh, the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and then Jesus commanded the 12 and the 72 to heal and cast out demons, raise the dead, Luke 9 and 10, and then also other places like Mark 6 and Matthew 10. And then more directly in Mark 16, these signs will accompany those who believe. 
In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, and they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And then John 14, 10 through 12. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So again, the picture is that these are just associated with believers in general, and I think Jesus knows that some would doubt because he says truly, in fact, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And historically, it's also not the picture of associated with just the bubble of the New Testament generation. This, I don't have time to read, but this is written from a Christian author born in 130 AD, and for context, the Apostle John died around 100 AD. And he's mocking a false prophet because even though he calls himself a prophet, the people as church can't heal or cast out demons or raise the dead, which is common in their churches. And then this is Tertullian, who was born in 160 AD, so again, just a little later. And again, he's mocking a false prophet named Marcion, who calls himself a prophet, but they don't have the gift of prophecy in their church or tongues or interpretation. And then he says, now all these signs of spiritual gifts are forthcoming from my side without any difficulty. Then this is another writing called the Didache, which we don't know what churches wrote it, but it's written for new churches that they planted, and it's a list of rules for churches, and a big part of the book is on prophets and how to do that, or rules for prophesying, not how to prophesy, but rules for it, and so it's clear that at this time it will still seem as common in the church service and then, um, this is another one I have to fly through, but Tertullian, the same author, is writing to a Roman, and he's arguing for Christianity, and he says the best evidence you can have is next time a Christian is on trial, bring forth someone clearly possessed by a demon, and the Christian will cast the demon out. Um, what more trustworthy than such a proof? And then, fearing Christ and God, and God and Christ, they become subject to the servants of God and Christ. So at our touch and breathing, overwhelmed by the thought and realization of those judgment fires, they leave at our command the bodies they have entered. So again, he's really confident, and this is actually prevalent in history up to America even. Uh, in 1801, there is a big revival movement which was defined by having people, demons were cast out, and then they would collapse and rise back up prophesying. I just, they, it says there's smoke, sweat, cries, shrieking, neighing of horses even, and then people would fall, expressing symptoms of seizures and hysteria. Many fell to their knees, crying for forgiveness. People counseled one another on spiritual matters. They sang, shouted, danced, groaned, or wept uncontrollably. Some fell into deep comas. 
The number who fell may have reached 1,000. Estimates range from 300 to 3,000. Some of you have heard of this. Uh, a hint is this is a picture of that revival, and another hint is that man preaching who led it is named Barden Warren Stone. Him and John Mulkey were the leaders of the Cambridge revival for this happened which became known as the Stone Campbell Movement once Alexander Campbell joined, and then the Restoration Movement. And this church would go on to be called Cambridge Church of Christ, the first of very many that the movement produced. And I got this picture from the encyclopedia of the Stone Campbell Movement and the quotes in our library, so you can read more about it. And more quotes from this encyclopedia about the Cambridge Revival, earliest historic site of the Stone Campbell movement. Cambridge Revival, most famous camp meeting hosted by Presbyterian Church in Cambridge, Kentucky, and its pastor Barton W. Stone, August 6th through 12th, 1801. People began falling, a phenomenon that had marked the revival movement. In his autobiography, Stone described the phenomenon as he first observed it early in the spring of 1801. Many, very many fell down as men slain in battle and continued for hours together in an apparently breathless, emotionless state, sometimes for a few moments reviving and exhibiting symptoms of life by a deep groan or piercing shriek or by a prayer for mercy most fervently uttered. Gradually they would obtain release, the gloomy cloud which had covered their faces giving way first to smiles of hope and then of joy, they would finally rise shouting deliverance and would address the surrounding crowd in language truly eloquent and impressive. With astonishment, Stone exclaimed, did I hear men, women, and children declaring the wonderful works of God and the glorious mysteries of the gospel, which parallels Acts 2, where they were amazed and perplexed hearing the mighty works of God. And Peter says this is a fulfillment marking the age where God says your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Continuing from the book, he reported that their appeals to others were solemn, heart-penetrating, bold, and free. Noting he was amazed at the knowledge of gospel truth displayed in their addresses, he observed that hearing their appeals, others would fall down into the same state from which the speakers had just been delivered. The Encyclopedia of the Stone Campbell Movement. And then from a different book, of the two mainstreams of the movement, one was led by Kentucky preachers Barton Warren Stone and John Mulkey, another by Thomas and Alexander Campbell, a father and son team in Bethany, Virginia. The Cane Ridge Meeting House had become the center of a vibrant movement that was enjoying rapid growth. The American religious movement that resulted from this merger never agreed on an exclusive name. I'm skimming here, but John or Stone and Mulkey also insisted on the name Christian. Their churches were usually designated Church of Christ or Christian Church. Stone's congregation at Cane Ridge was referred to as the Church of Christ at Cane Ridge. From the book, Christians on the Oregon Trail, which I have because John Mulkey's own family actually was among the first to sign up for the Oregon Trail. And they and others from the Restoration Movement are responsible for a lot of the churches here, including this Church of Christ. And the Mulkey family is actually buried 10 minutes from here uh, near Churchill High School. And my dad, who's really big in Stone Campbell history, wanted to visit when he came. And these are some pictures of the Mulkey Cemetery. 
me and Mackenzie. It was a really emotional experience because these are our spiritual ancestors and their families continue to be involved in the churches. And I think maybe John Mulkey and his family might be a few people's biological ancestor here. Uh, maybe I'll learn more after this. But the movement was actually a movement trying to unite churches from different denominations, which is important for me because of all the blessings that came from Ken's Church and North Boulevard Church of Christ coming together. And this came to be, oh, there's Philip Mulkey, a picture, John Mulkey's son. This came to be known as the motto, one of the main mottos, in necessary things, unity, and doubtful things, liberty, and all things, charity. I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is evidence of this. The Samaritans were the only other group that believed in one God, and he expects a certain lifestyle, like the Ten Commandments. But they also rejected the way he instructed to worship in the tabernacle and then temple, and decided to do their own thing. And someone asked Jesus, what should I do, what must I do to inherit eternal life at the end of Luke 10, which is a big question. And Jesus says the answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So he asked for an example, and I leave, Jesus gives the parable for a Levite and a priest, those in charge of administering the tabernacle and then temple worship, walk past someone left for dead, and then a Samaritan, of course, takes care of him and loves him as himself. And in the parable, then, with its context, the Samaritan's not just the good one, he's the only one with eternal life out of the three, which I think reveals a lot about what God prioritizes and also, I think it shows that Jesus understands that not all of God's people are going to agree on stuff. Christianity is not intended to be a hive mind, but everyone is different, and their differences are intended to bless each other, to come together and work together. And the differences also mean different opinions. And I even know people in this church who have dis disagreements, and it's something that happens everywhere, but I know we obviously work together for good, and I've even had some disagreements over the four years uh, because it's natural, and some of them were bad, and I found myself mad, and I had to sort of repent, I guess, because I realized it was the enemy, and so to have a mindset of another Christian as an enemy is something really bad when we know who the enemy is. And also, it's something that I think is especially because everyone here has been really gone out, has really gone out of their way to be nice and loving to me and Mackenzie. And so it's also the movement, the Stone Campbell movement thought the only way to accomplish unity was for everyone to go non-denominational, which is something that I think I agree with. I think otherwise it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, where some were saying, I follow Apollos, some were saying, I follow Paul, 
and these kind of labels and group mentalities can cause more issues and make it much harder to work together. I don't know if you've ever met someone who is a Christian and they said, what church do you go to? And you said, so-and-so Church of Christ, and they reacted in a way that made you go, oh, someone has a real bone to pick with Churches of Christ, and this person isn't someone we're going to work together to accomplish things for the kingdom, and uh, it's really something that can get in the way and block, and I think from experience, that was something from North Boulevard and Kins Church, when they worked together, there wasn't a this group and that group, but really, they blended really well and saw each other as just Christians, and it's something that I think we can do some of to show, I guess, an example of how, you know, if someone reacts like that and shares a bad experience with a Church of Christ, you would say, well, we're not all the same, and it's the true for a lot of a lot of groups, and, you know, some, a lot of people may think Pentecostal, a bunch of mountain hicks holding snakes and stuff, but actually Craig Keener, who wrote a popular cultural background study Bible and lots of commentaries, including a massive four-volume, 4,000-page Acts commentary, where every page is like this. You can see half the page is works cited, and he's Pentecostal, and he also, as an example of how you can find out, actually, there's are things that you, it's not always you disagree over big things. This page is on baptism, because his Acts commentary is one of the most thorough things I've read on the importance of baptism, which has been a uh, big topic since the beginning of the Restoration Movement when they, because the big thing was Christianity had become about traditions and they wanted to try to focus on the Bible and, you know, in the present there's still stuff that I hear that I don't agree with, but overall the importance of baptism is clear in every verse, especially in, um, you know, Romans 6 is when the old life ends and the new life begins, and then Acts 2 with repentance and belief in the gospel, forgiveness of sins and the spirit, and then 1 Corinthians 12 when you enter the body. And he gives, I kind of have to fly through it, but just a few quotes to show. He also, you know, it's not always something that you're going to disagree on everything, and you can be surprised. He says, repentance in Jesus' name is concretely expressed by summoning the repentant to baptism in Jesus' name. Baptism of repentance was an act of conversion. It seems no coincidence that baptism becomes a normal prerequisite for the gift of the Spirit. The act of empowerment, which one embraced the eschatological gift and consequent empowerment to share the apostolic mission for cross-cultural testimony, water baptism was meant to symbolize and ideally accompany the gift of the Spirit. And then I kind of have to fly through, but again, it's when you enter the community, and then it's when you receive the gift of the Spirit, which empowers you. So how do you know if someone has the Spirit? 1 Corinthians is obvious that it's not gifts because 
they abound with them, but they're also the most worldly out of all the churches. And then Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is an important verse for the charismatic movement because there's a lot of people who get too excited over these things and fall for lots of scams or cults or false teachers. Um, sadly, even someone once who I admired shared that they were going to, um, they paid for a thing that would teach them to prophesy and I was really disturbed that they could even consider that a legitimate concept and it was so obvious I thought that it, this is a scam and sure enough when I looked at the material they paid for it was the word guess fills it start to finish which is very unbiblical Deuteronomy 18 22 says put a false prophet to death and you'll know if they're a false prophet if what they say isn't true and also all that stuff is all that silly things, I always ask, like, you know, did you see any of these charismatic gifts? And the answer is always no. And it's obvious why, because it's the whole concept of teaching or learning is completely against the whole biblical foundation that it's from God, it's God doing it, it's a gift. And, you know, Ken never really emphasized it or anyone, they only ever said that they thought it's important and I should pray about it. And I even asked, you know, what's some of your experience? And he said, I thought it was, this stuff was important, so I prayed about it. And that's what they do in the Bible. They just prayed. There was, and then God did it through them. And it's something that, you know, I believe happens. Obviously, there's lots of people who think, um, you know, I want to say I can speak in tongues or get excited and speak gibberish, but I've also been at stuff where there were international students or missionaries and said they recognized the language. So I do think the New Testament version does happen. And then with prophecy, there have been some of my friends, even groomsmen, even Kirk, who wanted to go Ken's church, and they asked if they wanted to prophesy, and they said okay and they went through each one and they were talking to them like they knew them as well as me and even better than me and stuff I didn't know and then there's also been times that I think stuff like revelation and prophecy sounds so mystical but really they shouldn't be seen as any more mystical than anything else God does I think um, one of the most influential books for me is this miraculous movements Christianity's actually growing faster than ever it's one of the places in the world is West Africa there are huge disciple making movements and this is about some of those and it's a big thing that there are what we would think of as signs and wonders but they're not called signs and wonders movements. They're called disciple-making movements. And if you read the book, The Miracle is how 
these communities are transformed. And I think that it's a big thing from me as well that I think of myself as, I mean, the not just from before, but still every day, I think it's, um, I think I'm still, God gets me through every day miraculously. There's a lot of stuff before I converted, but also a lot of stuff since I've converted and big challenges um, too. This has become an important verse for me, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, Luke 18, 1. And I think it's something for the more that you do um, trust and obey, you realize it's not just that you're happy, but it's the, there's no other way. And the more that I do read and pray, even when I have small challenges and I feel like I don't have the energy for reading the Bible or praying today, I feel like I can't not because it's just the thought of not doing it is so unappealing and I think that, you know, when you are called to give up your old life, you learn it's not just giving up, but it's what you receive and how God gives you something new. And it's, like the verse says, more than you even wanted or imagined. And he proved that not only does he understand what we want and want to give that to us, but he loves us like the verse read earlier in communion, uh, while some would scarcely die for a righteous man, Christ proved his love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I want to close with, how do you know if someone has the Holy Spirit? Right before the Lord, Lord, I never knew you, Jesus says in Matthew seven fifteen through 20, you will recognize a tree by its fruit. And the Bible tells us what the fruit of the Spirit are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then I really think this, one of my favorite verses, goes well with it. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 4 through 5. You think about bearing fruit and what do the trees or vines do. It's really just they need to be watered. And at the, what's probably the last page of your Bible at the end of Revelation, it says, let the one who is thirsty come, the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I think you do see God's, miraculous and transformation power and these fruit come to life when you do have that relationship with Jesus and when you spend time in the word and prayer and actually the book says if you want to see disciple making movements in America the answer is too simple for most Americans it's you have to read the word and pray and that's the one and only key and so, um, Rob, you can come up. This isn't something, um, or Rob may be taking a break when he comes back. Oh, there you are. <laughs> Sorry. 
Uh, this isn't something that's any you know, new initiative or push for me. Uh, it's not even something that I really want. It's what I really want is to see lives changed and the church transformed and something that it's like, I'm not just saying this because of the verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, but I really, it's true. What I really care about and excites me is the thought of the church really abounding in faith, hope, and love, and most of all, love. And so, um, again, this was more of a Calvin's gone, and it's on a good topic where I could share and be a little more open about my thoughts. And uh, But now, though, I'm going to flee to the car, and if you have any concerns, you can find Calvin's email on the church website. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, we always, I'll be here. We always have an invitation for anyone who wants prayers or to put on Christ in baptism, and then also be here after uh, for any constructive compliments on the lesson. Thank you.